Uh, this morning we're going to hear from uh, three uh, dads. Actually, one of them's a dad and two of them are dads and grandfathers. And they are all going to share for a few minutes each. So can we put our hands together as we welcome Matt, John and Rick. Welcome. It's great. We're in this series about calling. We've been talking a lot about different elements of our calling. And uh, today we're going to be talking about called out of this world. Because uh, one of the building blocks of understanding our callings in this world is understanding that God's actually calling us out of something and into something. And so these guys are going to unpack that from a few different angles, I think. Uh, since they don't share all of the time, I hope you guys are going to be very encouraging and engaging and like nodding and those sorts of things and cheer them on. Sound good? All right, you ready? You got seven minutes each or something. Go for it, John. It's fairly hard to follow that act. But I want us to go now back in time to when Jesus was standing before Caesar. And it's not Caesar, Pilate. Well, he might as well have been standing before Caesar. And Jesus said this in the communication just before he went to the cross. This is what he said. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. It's interesting here that Jesus, um, in discussing his kingdom... He says, I'm from another place. But what Jesus is not saying is that my kingdom is not in this, is separate from this world. Because we know in John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, is that Jesus, the pre-incarnate word, the second person of the Trinity, he was the agent of creation. So Jesus is not saying that this globe, this earth, I am somehow not of. Because he made this earth. And clearly, Jesus is not saying that my kingdom is not on the people of this earth because he created them and he came and died for them. So Jesus must have been saying something else. I think what Jesus was saying, and it's really appropriate that Pilate was there representing the Roman kingdom, he was saying that my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's not, it does not follow the pattern of this world. I call people out of the world to live in the world and in the world that I created, but not to follow after what people have done to this world and the kingdoms and authorities they have set up. Jesus speaking to his disciples just in, the, in what we call the upper room discourse, the, Jesus' final words to his disciples, he said this in John 15, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. I'll say that again. If you belonged to this world, it, the, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to this world, to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world that is why the world hates you. You know, we are living in an increasingly godless society. And it's interesting, the change in my life when I was a Christian as a young person. You know, Christians were actually sort of admired. Sometimes they thought we were weird, but there was, we were definitely part of this world. We're not now. 
We're in the minority. The world is different. But what is the world? In Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, should I say, Paul uh, talks about three things that separate us from God. He talks about our sins, and this is what he says. As for you, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So what Paul is saying is that there's three things that separate us from God. Firstly, our own personal sin and transgression that separates us from God. Secondly, the ways of this world separate us from God. And then, of course, the devil. And so here we're honing in in particular on the world and what does it mean. Now, I want to introduce you to my favorite paraphrase translation, which is the J.B. Phillips New Testament. And some of you have never heard of, and it's the best thing you've never heard of. And I'm going to read uh, the same passage in the J.B. Phillips translation. Speaking to the Ephesians, Paul said this, To you who were spiritually dead all the time, listen to this, that you drifted along on the stream of this world's ideas for living. And that's in fact what Jesus is talking about when he said he's not of this world. What he is opposed to and what we should be opposed to and what we are not part of is the stream of ideas that the world has. That's what he's talking about. And so what is our response? What is our response to this? You know, we can see that God, so that the world has shut God out on every single level. The very world God has created, the world says, there is no God. So the very world that was created by the second person of the Trinity, they say that God doesn't exist. And secondly, they deny that Jesus came as a saviour of the world. He, de he denies that. And then, of course, you know, I was reading recently um, uh, one of the world's greatest physicists. He said that the universe has always existed. That's how we got here. So they deny the very existence of God. But the question is, how do we respond to this world that has shut out the ideas and with its ideas and practices, how it has shut out God? We know this passage really well. We're going to get to it in the J.B. Phillips translation. In Romans chapter 12, it says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.B. Phillips says this, and listen very, very closely. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your mind. So here's this picture of a mold. We know what a mold is. Something we put a liquid in it, and then it takes the shape of that mold. Don't let the world and its ideas and patterns squeeze you into that mold so that you become the very shape of the world. Your shape should be different to that of the world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. How can we prevent us being shaped by the world? Actually, it's dead simple. You put God first in everything in your life. Everything means everything. 
Everything comes under the Lordship of Christ. Everything we're going to do, and my mates here are going to talk about some of those things, and they'll reinforce that it's Christ that is Lord. And that's how you do it. And so, folks, think about the mould and the shape you are. Don't let or don't resist the pattern of the world and make sure that your shape of your mould is different. Amen. Thanks, thanks, John. That was awesome. Happy Father's Day, lads. Um, here we go. <laughs> 25 years ago, uh, I lived in America with my wife, and um, I wasn't a Christian 25 years ago. My wife had been a Christian for approximately four years. I was doing a chiropractic degree, and my wife was a stay-at-home mum. Um, she was looking after two kids, I was the breadwinner, plus studying at the same time. So was, money was really tight. Uh, that's what I'm talking on today is finances and money. Um, I held money. It was so important to me. I held it so tight. And um, it was my God, I feel. I remember coming home from work and Sherry said to me, hey, babe, I've got to tell you something. Um, we used to make very little, and at the end of every week, we'd have about $20 left. She said, I was driving along the road, and God gave me this nudge, and, and he told me to give our last $20 to this lady on the road. And I was like, well, it's fair to say I was pretty hostile in our house that night. <laughs> and the next morning, um, I couldn't believe my wife was such a fool and would make such a weak decision. I go to work and I come home and she goes, oh, guess what, babe? And I'm thinking, what? You gave away the TV. <laughs> and she said, uh, I went to go get us some milk with a little bit of money we had left over and um, I was standing in line and all the bells and alarms went off and uh, we won $300 <laughs> of groceries. I was like, man, my wife went from being a full to a genius in 24 hours, you know, I was like, yeah, we're eating steak, baby, oh yeah. It was just her obedience and listening to God that, that allowed that to happen, you know. In, in John 6, it talks about how Jesus, when he feeds the 5,000, and he had this crowd out in front of him, and I, he tested Philip, and he said to Philip, hey, Philip, we need to... Uh, go into town and get some bread to feed all of these people. And Philip looked at him and said, Jesus, it's going to take like half a year's wages to feed all those people. Just at that time, a young boy walks up and says, I don't have much. I've got five loaves of bread and two fish, but what I have is yours. Now, I, I imagine Jesus looked at Philip and looked at the little boy with a wink and at a boy. And he said, that's all I need. It was the heart behind the giving. It wasn't how much you give. It was the heart behind the how much you give. You know? I had an example of this where God gave me this example. And it was, I've got two kids. And it was like me, me saying to my daughter, hey, Britt. I've got $1,000. Can you look after this $1,000 for me? And she says, sure, Dad, no problem. I said, good. 
a week later, I call her up and say, hey, can you get a hundred bucks of that thousand and take it over to my mate, John, who lives just down the road, and her saying, mm, nah, I'm keeping it. Well, number one, it's not your money. And number two, if that's how you're going to be with the money, am I going to give you any more? Why would I? See, all of this money and stuff, it's not ours. It's God's, right? Right. We, um, we owned a couple of Anytime Fitness gyms, Sherry and I did, and we decided we were going to become part of Kingdom Builders. And, and part of Kingdom Builders is you, you have to put a pledge in so they can budget on how much money's going to come in. So Sherry went into one room, I went into another room, and we prayed about it, wrote down an amount on the piece of paper that we thought God had spoken to us both about. We came out and we put the piece of paper down and it was exactly the same amount. We're like, no, confirmation from God. Just as we're about to pledge, some bad things happened in the business. Now, if you weren't a Christian, you're living in this world, not of this world. If you weren't a Christian, you would say, do not give that money to the church. This is a bad decision right now. Hold on to that money. But God had confirmed it to Sherry and I when we were praying in that room. So who are we to say? So we pledged that money anyway. Boom, gave the money. The next day, I'm not joking, we broke all the records for Anytime Fitness, still to this day in New Zealand, for the most sales ever done through one club. A big day is about four sales. We did 67 sales. Only God, huh? Obedience. I want to I leave you guys with a, a three questions. The money that you have, is it yours or is it God's? Are you, are you looking after that money for God or is it actually yours? And then the second question Okay, if it's, if it's God's, are you generous with it? Because it's easy to not be. And hold it like this, like you're choking its head off. And the third thing is, I believe we've all had this. When was it last you had a nudge from God about giving some money? And you obeyed. Thank you, Lord for all your provision and your blessings. We love you. Amen. Sorry, I'm just a little bit taken aback that we've just had an Italian come under time. That was a great... I saw his notes too and I was a little bit worried, so... Um, I just want to focus on a little bit more about... Um, what we're called out into. And so we're called out of this world and we're called into this, this life, this body, this beautiful thing. Um, Brian Zand says, our task is not to change the world, but to be the world that has already been changed uh, by Christ. Um, and on top of that, a uh, American uh, theologian who um, is actually a, a a lecturer at Duke University, um, uh, Stanley Howarth says, the first task of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world the world. And so I think in, in this, 
it speaks of this distinction, this otherworldly sort of thing where we're called out of something, we're into something else. But um, the invitation from Jesus when, he, when we're looking at his model is that um, in John, he talks about, if you're thirsty, come to me um, and, and drink. And so we're looking at a world that is thirsty, and we are an oasis. So we're an oasis in a thirsty world. Um, the invitation there is something that, uh, in, in a lot of ways, I think we can get a bit caught up in, in, in our role in that invitation. And we're, we're looking at the world, and we're thinking they're thirsty. And we're looking at the world, and we're thinking we've got all the drink, and we are full of thirst. Uh, sorry, we're full of water, we're quenched. And yet, uh, look, I think that we are not called to um, look at the world in that way, but we're just called to be like Jesus. I was, um, in preparation for this, I, I actually had more to say, and then I sat down to, to read um, a little liturgical prayer from the Common Prayer. Um, it's a liturgy for ordinary radicals. So uh, I got distracted, and I thought I'd just read that. Um, I guess a, a look at how we become an oasis. So contemplative prayer. Over and over, Scripture invites us to abide in God, to rest in God, to dwell in God. More than 50 times, Paul repeats the phrase, in Christ. Contemplative prayer is not just about activity and speaking, but also about listening and resting in God. Many of us have grown up thinking of prayer as a checklist of requests. Uh, to God, like a grocery list, to someone headed to the supermarket. As one kid said, I'm heading off to pray. Does anyone need anything? Prayer is certainly about sharing our concerns and frustrations with God, but God is personal enough to come down and wrestle in the dirt with Jacob and answer the Abraham's pleading on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. Still, contemplative prayer goes deeper. A primary purpose of prayer is to impress on us the personality and character of Christ. We want to become like Jesus, so the life that we live is no longer ours, but Christ living in and through us. Prayer is less about trying to get God to do something we want God to do, and more about getting ourselves to do what God wants us to do, and to become who God wants us to become. There are times when we speak, weep, groan, and shout at God, but there are also times when we simply sit in silence and are held by our beloved. We remember the character of God, the fruit of the Spirit, the incarnation of Jesus, as it reveals to us what God is like with flesh on. And we pray that God's character will become our character. The monks have been known to say this, that our speaking doesn't add something, if our speaking doesn't add something beautiful to the silence, don't speak. For many of us, in a high-paced, cluttered world of materialism and noise, silence is a way that we can free up the space to listen to God. Silence gets interrupted pretty quickly, whether it's a knock at the door, a cry from the nursery, it's Father's Day after all, uh, or thoughts in our own heads. Something almost always breaks the silence we long for in, a, in contemplative prayer. It is tempting to give up, to say that the silence is not possible in our context, or I'm not cut out for this. But the wisdom of those who have gone before is helpful here. Bear with me, we're getting there. Teresa of Avila, who was distracted by her own thoughts and prayers, said she learned not to fight them, but to let them come and go like waves in the sea, trusting that God was an anchor who could hold her through any storm. 
Contemplation is about tending to the lines that anchor us in Christ. For Francis of Assisi, the San Damiano cross was one of those lines. Uh, Serving as an icon to focus his prayer on Christ's love. It was after hours and hours before the cross that he heard Jesus say, rebuild my church, which is in ruins. Then he got up and started the most radical renewal movement of the Middle Ages. Activism that matters to the kingdom is always rooted in prayer. If we want to join God in changing the world, the place to begin is on our knees before the cross. So coming back to that Stanley Howass um, quote, the first task of the church is not to make the world the world, uh, sorry, not to make the world more just, but it's to make the world the world. So how can we act in humility and grace to become an oasis? Um, I'll just, if we can, that's helpful. <coughs> just going to finish with a, a prayer here from Stran Coleman. And perhaps if you just close your eyes and um, posture ourselves. May you return to the simple, quiet gospel. The life of steady hands and integrity that in a world gone mad with instant gratification and selfish ambition, you would burn immovably and powerfully with God's gentle love. Amen. Amen. Um, I just want to thank you guys. Um, Thank you for your voice this morning. But even more than that, thank you for your life that, um, you know, the life of wisdom that you've lived, that you can share this voice with um, with all authority. And so we just want to honour you. Um, as you were all speaking, I, um, I remembered the song came to me from my youth, from my childhood. You would know it on the Salty Tapes. Um, and it was, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. And it says, when the rain came tumbling down, that the house on the rock stood firm. And um, thank you, guys. You have built your house, your life upon Jesus. He's been your foundation. You've looked to Him and not to the world. You've looked to His ways to inform the way that you live. And that's the way you've raised your children, your grandchildren, and are raising your children. And you are making the world of difference. You are bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And I thank you. I thank you for what you brought today.